The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Good morning, church. Uh, If you're online, good to see you. Uh, Well, you see me. We know how that goes. Uh, Welcome to those in person. My name is Chris. I'm the lead pastor here. Good to be with y'all this morning. Uh, We have a lot of work to do this morning. So would you please grab your Bibles if you are at home or with us? Uh, Grab a Bible, open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, That's where we'll be. If you uh, have a phone or a tablet, you could open that up to 1 Corinthians 10. You can Google search 1 Corinthians 10. We'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Uh, If you're at home and you're searching for that online, that's the ESV uh, that's where we'll be this morning. First Corinthians 10, uh, that's where we're going to spend our time. As you're turning there, I, I wanted to explain something that I'm sure many of you are aware of, but uh, there, there are these things in our world called paradoxes. And paradoxes are uh, seemingly self-contradictory ideas that when investigated or explained, prove to be true. So, so paradox is, it's two ideas that seem to contradict each other, like magnets repelling each other. They're two ideas that seem to contradict, but in fact, turn out to be true, even though they would, they would seem to contradict. Uh, and, and, and life is full of paradoxes. Okay, uh, here's a few that I found as I was searching around online this week. The more you try to impress people, the less impressed they'll be, Right? Anybody tried that? I've tried that. Does not work, right? Okay, you feel that? Um, The more afraid of death that you are, the less likely you're able to enjoy life, which is an interesting thought considering the times that we live in. Um, The the more that you learn, the more you realize how little you actually know, right? You've been around the block. You've been through school. You just realize, man, there's a whole lot more that I don't even get at all. Uh, The more you try to keep someone close, the further away you'll push them, right? All the needy college girls said amen to that one, right? You know that one? Uh, The only certainty is that nothing is ever certain. Uh, That one's like Yoda talk kind of. It just kind of, you know, makes your brain melt a little bit. Uh, So so there's paradoxes in our world, but there are some paradoxes uh, all throughout the Bible that we as Christians have to deal with. There are paradoxes all through our scriptures. We see unseen things. That's... Impossible, by the way, but it's not, right? It's a paradox. We reign by serving. We are made great by becoming small. We are exalted when we are humble. We are made free by becoming slaves. You see where I'm going? We gain strength when we are weak. We live by dying. Like these are paradoxes. And in our text this morning, I I think we're going to see what seems to be a contradiction but it actually happens to be one of the Bible's most beautiful paradoxes. Uh, so, so, so that's where we're going to go today. It's going to take us a while to get there this morning in our text. There's this big, long setup. It's not like Paul, I mean, he never does this, right? He never just kind of runs his mouth for verses and verses and verses and then finally gets to his point. That's what he's going to do today. So I just, uh, I, I just want to commend to you, stick with me here. Okay, stick with me, and there's payoff in the end uh, if we can get through what is a complicated text. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 1. 
Paul starts like this, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. Now, I want to stop right even with that phrase to kind of bring us up to speed because we've been walking through 1 Corinthians all year together. Uh, We've been working through this book kind of verse by verse, phrase by phrase. And today Paul says, hey, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers. And we have to kind of, what what does he want? Why is he saying this? Like, what is he coming off of in the, at the end of chapter nine? So here's real quick, chapter, chapters eight, nine, and 10 are really one big unit in this book. And chapters eight and nine really climax with chapter 10. So in eight and nine, we have seen this. Paul first said that he would lay aside his preferences on food sacrificed to idols for the good of his brothers and sisters in Christ. He would lay aside his preference for the good of others. Then the next week we looked at Paul, he said that he would sacrifice his rights, things that actually he had legitimate legal right to, not just preferences, but things that he was due, he would actually lay those aside for the good of the church, for his brothers and sisters. And then last week, Paul told us that he did all of these things. He would lay aside all of his things, all of his freedoms, because he wanted to win people to Christ. He wanted to win some. He said, I'll become all things to all people that, in some, that, that I would win some. That was his message last week. But now he's going to issue a warning. He's going to issue a warning because as he lays all of this stuff out there for Christians to practice, we can quickly think that we're the strong ones that he's talking about in these passages. Everybody else is weak, but we're the ones who've got it figured out. And and we will think that we're good and everybody else is in trouble and that we don't have anything to worry about. But Paul says now this morning, hold on, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers. And what he's going to do is he is now going to take the next verses and he is going to compare the story of Israel from the Exodus, okay, from the book of Exodus and the wilderness generation as this sobering comparison to the Corinthian church. So it's going to feel very Old Testament for, for the next few verses. Follow me here. Let's dig into this. So back to verse one again, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ So this is a very confusing little passage unless you're really aware of your Old Testament uh, history and have done a lot of work trying to figure out what he's doing here. So let me just kind of recap what, what I think Paul is doing here. He's referring to Israel's exodus from the land of Egypt. You might remember this from movies. You might remember this from Sunday school. I mean, this is a popular uh, image in the Old Testament. And, and he's relaying that and he's taking that as an image to kind of compare and contrast it to what's going on in Corinth. And he's showing ultimately that God provided for his people as they were leaving Egypt. So he, he, you, you probably followed this, but it said uh, that God provides his people with this cloud, a pillar of cloud to direct them uh, and dry ground as they pass through the Red Sea. So he's talking about God providing direction and protection for his people as they're leaving uh, Egypt. 
Then he talks about their deliverance through the sea and he compares it to baptism, which is this kind of weird thing. But he says, hey, this is kind of Israel's beginning of their separation from Egypt and this renewed identity as God's people, as God's covenant community. And therefore baptism is kind of a term that represents this experience. Just like our baptisms are the moment that we publicly display that we are no longer identifying with who we used to be, but now we are identifying with Christ. We are in a new uh, era of our lives, as it were. So it is here. God provides an identity to his people. And then finally, just like he pointed to baptism, he talks about spiritual food and spiritual drink, which is a metaphor kind of pointing to a version of the Lord's Supper. This manna and, and, and this water from a rock essentially representing God's provision for spiritual food and drink. And so he's trying to, this is what Paul's trying to do. He's, he's talking about Israel, this Old Testament story, and he's saying, hey, Corinthians, you should pay attention to what has happened. God provided so much to this wilderness generation. He provided, in fact, everything for them. But then verse five gets a little sketchy. Nevertheless, that's after God provided everything for them. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So if you know the story, if you're familiar with Exodus, the story of God's people leaving Egypt, uh, you know that the deliverance from Egypt did not ultimately mean deliverance for God's people into the promised land. If you know the story, you realize that Israel had to pass through a season in the wilderness of testing, of testing in the desert before they could enter the promised land. And it says that uh, the, the exact quote is, with most of them, God was not pleased, which is, uh, by the way, a huge understatement. A huge understatement. How, do you remember how many of the wilderness generation actually made it into the promised land? Two. Caleb and Joshua. That's it. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people didn't make it. God was displeased with almost every single one of them. Two of them made in. And Paul is quoting Numbers chapter 14 here. And the ESV kind of softens the blow, but it says that they were overthrown in the wilderness. But that same word in Numbers 14 is translated, they were slain, to slay. They were slain in the wilderness. You see, even, even after years of God providing for them, rescuing them, delivering them out of the oppressive hand of Pharaoh, Israel ultimately turns away from God. They turn to idolatry and sin, and they end up, instead of making it to the promised land, the inheritance that God had given them, they end up rotting away, slain in the wilderness. And that's how the Exodus, God's great deliverance of his people, that story ends. You see, Paul is setting the Corinthians up here. He's setting them up here. And we'll see, he's going to make it really clear, starting in verse 6, what he's trying to do. So verse 6. Now these things, the whole story that he just recounted, they took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. He clearly links 
Israel and all of them dying in the wilderness to Corinth and the church there. And he says, these things took place as examples for us. And so I want to bring up my main point this morning on the screen. uh, And this is, I'm going to just say this for the rest of the morning. It happened and it happens. This is an old idiom that that people have said for, for years and years, but it happened and it happens. And we're going to see this. God saves, God delivers, God baptizes, God provides spiritual food and drink. And those same people that he does all of those things for, they turn to idolatry, to sin, and ultimately are overthrown, are slain. It happened in Israel and it happens in Corinth. And and hear me, it happens today. It still happens. People have a conversion experience, right? They come to church, they come to a youth camp, they go to a VBS, they, they do something. They have some sort of conversion experience and they live as a Christian for a time. It might even look like it's legit. They might even experience God. They might even experience miracles, right? But, but over time, they, they turn away from God. They fall into sin, they They move towards worshiping idols, modern idols, of course, but idols nonetheless. And they end up overthrown in the wilderness. Goodness, I see this all the time. I used to be a Christian. I used to go to church. I used to believe in Jesus, but no longer. It happened and it happens And what Paul's going to do is he's going to start making observations about how what happened in Israel is actually happening in Corinth and, by the way, happens today. So let's keep reading, okay? He is warning these these people. And I think this warning is for us as well. So let's keep reading. Look at verse 7. He says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So, so Paul, he's going to, in the next four verses, list four sins that the wilderness generation committed and that the Corinthian church are in, 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 uh, in jeopardy of committing themselves. And the first one that he just talked about is idolatry. Some of them turned to uh, worship idols. And he's quoting here Exodus 32. Okay, Exodus 32 is the story where uh, the wilderness generation, they're in the, in the desert. They've left Egypt. They are not in the promised land. They're wandering in the wilderness. Moses is up on a mountain. Okay, he's up there and he's getting the law from God, the Ten Commandments, right? Charlton Heston, you've seen this movie. Like, this is the moment, okay? He's up on the mountain. The people are back down, hanging out, and uh, they, they just get restless. The text says that they, they, they get restless and they make a demand from Aaron, Moses number two, and they say, hey, we don't know where Moses went, so make us some gods that we can worship. Make us some gods. And Aaron just like rolls over and is like, okay, fine, give me your earrings and all these things. And, and he melts them down and it says a golden calf came out, which I don't know how that happens, but he melts down all their earrings and stuff and a golden calf comes out. And this is what, Mo, this is what Aaron says to the people. He said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Which if I'm there, I'm thinking, really, bro? 
That golden calf that you just made got us out of Egypt? I don't even remember the golden calf. Like, I don't know how they got fooled by this, but they demanded the idol. He made them the idol. And then it says that Israel rose up early. This is where he quotes. Paul quotes this. They rose up early. They made out offerings to that calf. And then they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now that little phrase, rose up to play, is a euphemism in the Hebrew, essentially for an orgy. God's people have just been delivered across the Red Sea, walking on dry land. And, and they cross the Red Sea and, and, and there's food falling from heaven. There's water sprouting from rocks. And they're like, give us a God so that we can eat and drink and be merry and worship and then have an orgy. When God's people turn away from God and worship idols, it leads to gross debauchery and sin. It happened and it happens. So that's the first sin is idolatry. The second sin is mentioned in verse eight. Look at verse eight. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. Now this seems like it's linked, but it's not because he refers to another, a different experience in the wilderness generation. Uh, But sexual immorality is the second sin that he tackles. First was idolatry. Second is sexual immorality. And we don't have time to go into this in depth because if you go back and listen to 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, we talked about sexual immorality like crazy. It was so awkward because we were all in quarantine and I was on video watching myself talk about sexual immorality. It was very bizarre, right? Um, But Paul, he refers to a different story here. He's not talking about the golden calf. Now he's recalling a story in Numbers chapter 25. And in Numbers 25, uh, there's this moment where Israel has sexual relations with the pagan women of Moab, a a local tribe while they're wandering through uh, the desert. And, and, And what happened is they had sexual relations with the women, these Moabite women, and then they start worshiping Moabite gods, actually eating food sacrificed to those demon gods, which is very interesting considering the context in 1 Corinthians, and then God unleashes his fury and 23,000 Israelites die in a plague, just like that. So not only does idolatry lead to debauchery, but the flip-flop, okay? Debauchery, sex with these pagan women, leads them to start worshiping idols. Debauchery leads to idolatry. So Tim Keller, who is like the Yoda of Christendom right now, okay? Uh, he, he, he illustrates this uh, when he talks, uh, he talks about uh, catching up with college students who come back to his church uh, from like a semester at school. And so he'll, he'll take them out to uh, get coffee with them and catch up on life. And when he ca- gets to the point in the conversation with a college student about uh, the, the state of their spiritual lives, he says that often a college student after a semester or two will hem and kind of haw and just kind of, you know, they'll, they'll just talk about the difficulty that they have and the doubts that they're experiencing. Maybe they've had a science class or a philosophy class or two and it's that that their foundations of their faith are starting to shake. And Keller says at that point, he looks them straight in the eye and he asks them one question. He says, so who have you been sleeping with? And shocked, their faces inevitably just fall and they'd say something like, how did you know? 
And he said he's seen this on repeat in his 30 plus years of ministry. Sexual immorality leads us away from God. It becomes an idol. Idolatry leads to debauchery, but debauchery leads to idolatry. It happened and it happens. Verse nine, here comes the third sin. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Another Old Testament reference, another wilderness generation illustration here. And it's the third sin that Paul mentions and that's testing God. Idolatry, sexual immorality, and now testing God. And I would say that testing God is the opposite of trusting God. Testing God is the opposite of trusting God. We test God when we stop trusting what God's doing in our lives. Like when we think we know better than God what is good and right for us, that's testing him. And I'm sure none of us would ever question whether what God is doing in our life is good and right. Certainly not, right? But Paul, he refers to Numbers 21, another story in the wilderness generation where the people, they become impatient in the desert. They're getting impatient with God. And so they start to question and test God. And they say, why have you brought us up out of Egypt? We hate this food. We're sick of manna. There's no water. There's just like a rock that shoots some water. Like we're going to die in this wilderness. You should have left us back in Egypt. And God's response, I'm not joking. He sends serpents. Snakes, that's God's response, snakes, okay? They, they, they go among the people and they bite the people and they kill the people. Like if you think the Old Testament is crazy, you're right. That's crazy, right? God's wrath is poured out on his people who he loves, who he delivered with poisonous snakes. It happened and it happens. Maybe not the snake part. That might not happen, but just, you know, be careful. And then there's one more. Okay, so three sins. Here's the fourth, verse 10. He says, nor grumble. After he's talking about putting people, putting God to the test, he says, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer, which is like a good name in the Old Testament for an angel and a heavy metal band, the destroyer, right? Like that's what I'm thinking that is. But but the last sin, hear me, this one's hard. The last sin is whining which as a father of a five-year-old daughter, I feel, right? Whining, complaining, grumbling, okay? It's closely linked with the testing God, but it sums up what happened in Israel. They just constantly complained and grumbled and whined and didn't trust. And it says they were destroyed. The destroyer. So again, it would never happen today, right? Well, I mean, never to me, but I know a guy who's really complains all the time, right? Not me though, not me. Those are the four sins of Israel. And now verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. That's my summation. It happened and it happens. These things happen, but they happen, okay? 
Paul recounts all these things as an example to call out the Corinthians for what is currently going on in their church. He calls out all these Old Testament snakes and destroying angels and plagues. He calls all those things out to say, hey, Corinthians, be careful. It's happening again. Be careful. Now, here's where Paul, I think, introduces the paradox that I talked about at the beginning of this sermon. And we're going to spend the rest of our time in the last couple of verses of this text um, because I think this is his main point. Okay, so the first half of the paradox is in verse 12, and, and then the second half is in verse 13. So let's look at verse 12. These are the underlying passages. These are the memorized passages. You don't need to memorize the serpent passage unless you're really into it, okay? But like, I would memorize 12 and 13 if you're a Bible memorization person. Here's verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. That's the first half of the paradox. And it's the warning for us this morning. If you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. Why? Because Israel thought they stood and they fell. And the Corinthians, they think that they are standing, but Paul is worried that they might fall. It happens. It happens. The Greek word here for fall, okay, at the end of, uh, uh, there at the end of verse 12, is the word pipto, Pipto, kind of like Pepto, but Pipto, okay? Uh, Pipto, uh, in the Old Testament, when you look at the Old Testament Greek translation of uh, the Bible, uh, Pipto, to fall, is a euphemism for dying. If you fell, it was like you fell, you're dead, okay? Just like we saw it back in verse 8. You look at verse 8 again. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. That's not like they slipped and fell. You get that? Right, they're dead, That's what the euphemism means. The word translated fell is actually pipto in that. They died. I bring this up, okay? I bring it up because I think we could read verse 12 and soften it if we wanted to. Like we could just say, oh, you just slipped and fell into sin. Take heed lest you slip and fall into sin. As if it's not really a big deal. Oh, I just just screwed up. I I just messed up. I'm just struggling with this right now. One commentator says this, the Corinthians not only need to watch lest they cause others to stumble and fall, which is what Paul talked about in chapters eight and nine. They need not only watch lest they cause others to stumble and fall, they also need to watch lest they fall themselves. They think they're standing firm but now they're letting their guard down and taking their freedoms for granted and they're dabbling into things that they really should not. Uh, One commentator likened it to this. He said, "They're, they're like thirsty hikers who drink from a mountain stream unaware of the debilitating giardia that might lurk from that water that's crystal clear. Here's what Paul means for us. If you are in ongoing, unrepentant sin, like the wilderness generation was, like the Corinthian church 
was. If, if you're in sexual immorality, if you're in idolatry, if you are testing the Lord, if you are constantly complaining and whining and grumbling, not just like you mess up. Everybody messes up. That's not what he's talking about. Not like you slip and fall and you're like, oh goodness, and you repent and you try not to do that anymore. But, but if you are in ongoing sin and you think you're standing firm there, Paul's warning is be careful. You might fall. You might die. Like that's, you might be slain. What does that even mean? Like, what does that mean today? Well, well, I think this text brings up all kinds of questions about salvation. And, and I think he's pointing out a certain false security that some have in their, in their relationship with the Lord. Like if you call yourself a Christian, you say, I am a Christian, okay? But you have no real love for God. No real desire to follow his ways. You can point to no evidence that you're growing. You, you can point to no area in your life where you're deepening, going deeper with him. You're caught up in, in sin. You have no real desire to repent. You might feel bad if you get caught, but you don't actually want to repent. You have no real desire to change, no real desire to mature, but you're a Christian, You're a Christian because you go to church and you were baptized when you were 11 and that's your religious preference. You're a Christian because you're not a a Buddhist. Certainly not. I'm a Christian. I'm an American. I'm a Christian. If that's true of you, then, then Paul's words are for you. If you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. It happened and it happens. So can you lose your salvation? Is it once saved, always saved? Is that how this works? Well, first, I don't think God loses things uh, like we do. That's a whole other point. But, but, but I, think, I think it's safe to say that there are unsaved people who for a while look like they're saved people. They appear that way. Just like Israel was provided for in incredible ways. And yet they were not all saved. They were all delivered and yet they were not all ultimately delivered. So I think the first half of the paradox is a warning, okay? Take heed. Be careful. Okay, careless overconfidence is a very dangerous thing. That's the first half. It's a warning. But the second half is the verse that most of us really like because it's a promise. And it's found in verse 13. Look at verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So that's why this, you have to read the Bible in context. This is why it's, you can pull that verse out and just memorize it and champion it in your heart as a way to get out of sin. And that's good and right. But in context, it's the second half of a paradox. He said, take heed lest you fall, but God is faithful. Okay. So what? 
You should be scared and be worried, but God's got you. So which is it? We must be vigilant in our pursuit of maturity. We must be vigilant in our pursuit of discipleship. We must be like taking heed and be humble lest we fall. Or is it God is faithful? God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. He's going to provide you a way of escape. Which is it? Well, it's both. It's a tension. It's like two magnets kind of working together. It's a paradox, I think. Three quick things to note in verse 13 about temptation that are really helpful. First, you will be tempted. The, the text doesn't say if you are tempted. It's like you will be tempted, okay? It's not a matter of if. It's just a matter of when. And that's why diligence is so incredibly important, okay? The good news is this. Temptation isn't falling. So you will be tempted. The good news, it's not like temptation isn't sin. To be tempted is not to be a sinner, to give in to temptation. Now there's the sin. But you will be tempted. That's the first thing to know about temptation. The second thing is this. You are not unique. You're not unique. I know your mama told you you were a snowflake and a skittle and a rainbow, right? She, mama lied to you, okay? Mama's a liar. Don't, don't, that's not true. I take it back. If Harper's watching, I take that back. Mama always tells the truth. But, um... <laughs> But hear me, you are not unique in your temptation. You are not unique in your temptation. If you're a note taker, which I think gets you a better position in heaven, but if you're a note taker, uh, write this down. The human bent is to believe that you're the only one who struggles with this or that sin. The human bent is to believe that you're the only one who's struggling with this. And that's such a lie. It's not true. Paul says it's common to man. And I'll just I'll get on a soapbox for a moment. This is why it's so important to be a part of a church. It really is. This is why I'm so nervous about all the statistics I've been talking about all week, about people walking away from the church in this COVID season, right? People who are just kind of like, I'll get back to church once all this is done, when I don't have to watch online, when I don't have to wear a mask. That's why I'm so nervous because as a church, we come together to confess and repent and realize that we're not alone. You find out when you're in community that you are not alone in your temptation. When you're isolated, that's when you're at the highest risk. So being in community helps us not to fall. It helps us ward off verse 12. So that's, that's just, that one's for free, okay? Here's the third thing about temptation. The third is this. There is always a way of escape. You will be tempted. You are not unique. And there's always a way of escape. This is both good and bad news for us. The escape route is good and bad news. Good news is you always have a fighting chance. You always have a fighting chance against temptation and sin. The bad news is you've got no excuse. There's a way out. There's no such thing as, well, there was just no way out of that. There was just no way. I mean, she just came over and it was late and the door was closed and there was just no escaping what happened. There was no way out. There's always a way out. Most of the time it's a door. Literally. 
Most of the time, it's leaving where you are and getting away from that thing that's causing you temptation, okay? There's always a way out. And then verse 14, it starts a new paragraph, but I think it actually could be linked to the previous stuff. Verse 14 just caps this whole thing off for us. Verse 14 says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Paul's saying, hey, take the door. The exit is clearly marked. Take it. There's a way of escape, but you have to choose to go through it or you'll fall. (laughs) I read this passage this week and I thought, oh man, really, I did. Like I was reading, I was like, come on, serpents, what? I don't want to preach this passage. This is weird. And then I kept reading and I realized this is important. This is extremely important stuff. Paul's saying, hey, learn from the wilderness generation. Learn from their mistakes. God loved them. He delivered them. He provided for them. And yet they fell. It happened. And the Corinthians, for us, now they are a model. God loved them. The gospel was brought to them. A church was planted amongst them. And yet, now they're slipping. It happens. And so my prayer for, for some of us this morning, maybe you're online with us, my prayer for you this morning is that maybe some of us would take heed. This warning is meant to get you away from falling. I've said it before, but if you don't want to fall down, don't walk in slippery places. But the slippery places are so fun. Yeah, but you could fall. Take heed. Take heed. I don't know what your temptations are, but I know they're common. Idolatry, sexual immorality, testing, grumbling, whining, complaining, That's the Corinthians. That's the the Israelites. What about you? Maybe it's something entirely different, but I promise you're not alone in it. I don't know what your temptations are, but when when you're face-to-face with them, my prayer is you would take the route of escape. Because if the paradox is real, and I think it is, if you're standing firm, take heed lest you fall. If you think you're just okay, and you're not doing anything to move forward, take heed. You might be on a slippery slope, but God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. May you live in that tension. May we live in that tension together. Church, it happened and it happens. Let's pray together. And Lord, um, there's part of me that wants this to freak us out. And also there's another part of me that wants us to feel your warm embrace of your faithfulness in this. And that's again, the tension, the paradox. So Lord, at first, let me pray for the second half. For those who are saved, for those who, who do have love for you, for those who desire to go deeper, for those who are putting sin to death in their lives, for those who are attempting, albeit 
imperfectly to follow you, to follow your law. Lord, I pray that they take great comfort in knowing that temptation, though it is coming, is common and there is a way of escape. I pray that is comfort for your people this morning, Father. But I also pray for those who might have a false hope, who who think that being a Christian is a lot like choosing a political party or deciding what, what cell phone coverage contract to sign. And they don't let it affect every part of their being. And they have no real love for you, Father, and, and no real desire to be changed, to, to pursue their sanctification. And, and I do pray, Lord, that those would take heed. Holy Spirit, that you would bring conviction from this passage from the Apostle Paul. Lord, we want to live in this balance where we are always watchful of our lives and yet trusting that you are faithful. Help us to live there, to live in the tension and to grow in our trust and dependence on you. Lord, we bless you for this message. We bless you for uh, the, the, the recording of it by your servant, Paul. Let it minister deep in our hearts and our lives today. We pray this in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit.